0: With me to Titus chapter one. We're going to finish looking at Titus chapter one as, as well as the first verse in, in Titus chapter two. Let me pray for us one more time and then we'll dive in. Father God, thank you. Uh, first off for, for being a God that won't fail us. Lord, we thank you for those, those covenant promises that we, just, that we just build our lives on. The fact that you will never leave us or forsake us the fact that you'll be with us and for us no, no matter the circumstances of life. And we're all going to walk through hard seasons and dark days, but you're always there. You're always working for our good. You'll never fail us. And so Lord, we're, we're just here confessing that, professing that truth, claiming it, trusting you. But Lord, in in ways that we're not or ways that we're struggling to believe those things. We just ask for your spirit to come and minister to us. I pray that he would come and and just give us eyes to see where we're blinded, to give us faith where we lack, to convict us where we need conviction, to encourage us where we need encouragement. So spirit, come and just fill this room and and do the work that only you can do. And Lord, in the end, I I pray that this service would, would glorify you in a way that that just draws us up to you so that we can be in your presence and experience the joy that comes with dwelling with you. So, Lord, do a good work. And, and Lord, to that end, I pray that I would not say anything out of step with your will or your word, but I would simply hide behind the cross. It's in Jesus' name we'll pray. Amen. I want to start with a question, and maybe it's a hard question or a complex question. It's a specific question, so, so hang with me. Here's my question. Should we allow someone into covenant membership into our church if they're living an unrepentant, sinful lifestyle, the sort that would require us to immediately step into a church discipline process with them? Should we allow them into church membership? I asked that question to a group of young people this week, and in that case, I actually kind of named the specific sin that, would, would fit with that, but to my surprise, that discussion then went all over the place kind of to my surprise I, I I felt like they weren't able to effectively answer that question. The problem was is that they were really just breathing in a lot of what the world teaches about a lot of different things they were just they had all these presuppositions about things like sin and love and acceptance and and, and those things were really from the world unless Shaped from the Bible, and those things were really shaping their theology. So so they had trouble answering this from a a biblical perspective. Now, to their credit, again, I I named a specific sin in this scenario. This could apply to all sorts of sins, but I I named a specific sin, and the specific sin that I named, it, it was a type of sin that the church has a history of not treating in a healthy way. We've, we've treated it at times almost as if it's like this unforgivable sin. The, the church has struggled to understand this sin. The church has struggled to love people who've struggled with that particular sin. And again, to, to these young people's credit, what they were trying to do is they were trying to be as loving as possible in their answer. However, what if that person doesn't think that it's a sin? Even if the Bible is abundantly clear, plain teaching of the Scripture that it is indeed a sin. You see, the students struggle to understand the Bible's teaching on sin and church and church membership and discipleship and church discipline and even love. Now listen, every generation has struggles with, with bad doctrine both inside and outside the church. And we struggle with it because many times there's just this cultural air that we breathe. There's just these cultural presuppositions that we just assume. And then when we come up against the Bible, they're pitted against each other. But in reality, we're believing these things because we're really believing things from the world instead of things from the word. So the church has always needed leaders to silence and rebuke bad doctrine and teach good doctrine. If you're new with us, this is the fourth week of a nine-week study of the book of Titus. And Titus is one of the pastoral epistles. And we've said the theme of this book really comes from the first four verses of the book. And in, from those first four verses, we've said that this book is all about being devoted to good doctrine and being devoted to, to good deeds. And we've said that there's a link there, that those things go together. So if you look up at Titus 1.1, Paul begins talking about being an apostle. So he references his apostolic ministry, this this God-given ministry. So this wasn't Paul's ideas. These were God's ideas. And what he says about his ministry is his ministry was supposed to be all about increasing the knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness. And so he sees a link there that, listen, what he felt like God was calling him to do was to help people increase their knowledge of the truth but, but in a way that actually led to their godliness. So he didn't split out kind of the speculative stuff from the practical stuff. He saw how they went together. And, and they go together in a very similar way to the call that Jesus gives his disciples in the Great Commission. That, that first week, or we, we saw that comparison between Matthew 28, 19, and 20, where Jesus told his disciples to make disciples. And then he explained how by teaching them. But, but he went on to say, teaching them to obey all that I've commanded. So what the disciples were to do, their commission was to go make more disciples. And the way they were to make more disciples is they were to teach, but they were to teach specifically that they were to obey all that Jesus had commanded them. Therefore, churches and church leaders are given to you in order to explain and apply good doctrine to your life. That's why God has given you pastors and elders. And we can do a lot of things in a church. But but if we're not teaching good doctrine, and if we aren't seeing people live good lives, carrying out good deeds with their lives, then we're doing it wrong. Then we've missed it, okay? However, I think we tend to be skeptical of this idea of good doctrine. It just sounds so medieval to us, right? We we tend to kind of reject that category sometimes. And and it really becomes evident when, when good doctrine kind of butts up against these cultural presuppositions. And listen, every culture has them. And every uh, you know subcategory within a culture has them. These things that we just kind of assume. These things that we just kind of kind of breathe in. They're just kind of in the air around us. But many times in every culture, the gospel is going to speak to some of those things, and that becomes kind of this this crossroads or this moment of truth for us, where where we have to ask, okay, what do we really believe? That's why Titus this section Titus one ten to two one is so important because it forces us to step into some of those cultural presuppositions. We need to be open to God's word challenging us in some of the ways that we think, and it's going to call us to turn from maybe some of the subtle things that we believe. That's why this is so important. What we're going to see here is kind of three movements built around three commands. The, the first one is, is this passage is going to call us to, to silence the divisive, empty, and dishonest voices around us. Number two, it's going to call us to rebuke cultural presuppositions and unfaithfulness. And number three, in the face of opposition we're going to hear the call to teach sound doctrine. So the first one is to silence the divisive, empty, and dishonest voices. Look with me at verses 10 and 11. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced, since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain, and they ought not to teach." This begins kind of related to Titus uh, 1.9, and and in that previous verse, that was kind of the, the final verse in this section on the qualifications of elders, where we looked at these, these seven different virtues uh, of what an elder should be. And we said in, in verse 9 that there, there's actually a virtue that an elder should embody, but it also gives us what an elder is supposed to do. Both of those things are going on in verse 9. It says, He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction and in sound doctrine, and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Now we've said that's a virtue. That is something to do, but there's a virtue in there, because he's supposed to hold the sound doctrine. The elders were to hold to that. And that's a virtue because that begins in their heart. That begins about the character of who they are. They should want that. But also there's always opposition to that. There's always challenges to holding to sound doctrine. There, there's, we're going to see that there's opposition inside and outside the church. So, so there's a grit to holding to sound doctrine. There's a perseverance that they're supposed to have that they're not supposed to abandon it. So, so it's a character issue. It's, it's a virtue first. But, but it's also something that they should do. Again, the elders should be able to give instruction in sound doctrine. In other words, what elders are supposed to be doing is they're supposed to be teaching you. That's their main role in their life is to give you instruction on good doctrine. That's that's the main reason why God has given you pastors and elders. Titus 10 and 11, it now gives the, the reason that we have these pastors or the reason why they're supposed to be teaching us good doctrine. Look again at verse 10. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. Verse 10 is the problem. This is why we need elders. This is why we need them teaching. These guys, there's always going to be guys around you who are making a lot of noise. And the elders are supposed to speak into that. They'll look throughout the history of the church. There's always been those voices that are divisive, that are empty, that are dishonest. There's always been false teachers. There's false teachers today. Maybe you've had experiences with them. I I believe that I was in church at one point with someone who who is uh, what Jesus would call a wolf in sheep's clothing. He was someone that I think was falsely presenting himself as a Christian leader for the purpose of causing division in the church. This happens today. The, the counselor, Dan Doriani, says that, that often these false teachers, they... they fly under false covers such as seminary professors who sign a pledge to uphold biblical inerrancy and then proceed to undermine the Bible in their classrooms. Listen, that, that was in our denomination seminaries in the 60s and 70s and 80s. Th- that, this stuff still happens today. But let's unpack the noise a little bit. He, kinda, he does four things here. First off, he says these voices are insubordinate. They're rebellious. They're disobedient. They're refusing to submit to the authority of the word. These types of voices, they produce division in the church. So when that happens, they're attempting to peel off people from orthodoxy into faithfulness. So they're divisive. Second, these voices were empty or they were idle talkers. Now, now the, the Greek is a little bit different than the English here. And in, in the English, when we think of these people, maybe if you remember the old movie Slackers, where they just kind of in a lazy way, these guys just kind of mosey around Austin, just talking about weird stuff. And and they just talk about ridiculousness the whole time. They, they're idle talkers. There's an emptiness to, to it. There's a There's a laziness to it. But in the English, we just kind of giggle at it because it's these guys over here in the corner and they don't really affect everybody else. That's the difference between the Greek and the Greek There's a futility to their thoughts and to their words, but it affects other people. And and that's why Paul raises it here, that these voices, they were were leading the sheep away because of their sarcasm and their unfaithfulness. It was leading people to to spiritual apathy. But, But number three, these voices were deceptive. Now listen, things, not only were they untrue, but sometimes things can be accidentally untrue. You're probably like me. You've probably accidentally held things that were, positions that were untrue. But that's different than what's going on here. They were intentionally untrue. They knew it was false, and they were trying to lead people astray as a result of it. They were deceptive. But fourth, these voices were somehow related to the Jewish circumcision party. Now, if you remember the book of Galatians, there's, there's probably you know, you're probably thinking Galatians right now because this is the problem that was going on in Galatians. You, you had these, these Jewish leaders that were saying, yeah, you, you do need to believe in Christ, you do need to believe what He did on the cross, but you need to add to that. You, you're, it's important for you to have good works as well for you to be justified. Paul references this in Galatians two fifteen and 16. He said, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. That's what they were teaching falsely. So so they were teaching a legalistic gospel. Be good and then you'll be justified. So Paul's directly rebuking this teaching that says, listen, the cross was insufficient. You you need something more. We understand that the cross was sufficient. We don't need anything else. We don't have to perform all these good works in order to be right with God. So they were insubordinate. They were empty. They were deceptive voices. And they weren't preaching a gospel of grace alone and faith alone. So the solution, that's the problem, But the solution is found in verse 11. If you look again at verse 11, he says for them to silence these voices. He says they must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain and they ought not to teach. Silence is a strong word. It means to muzzle or, or bridle or, or keep someone from speaking. The, the, the problem is the noise of the, of the bad doctrine. All these voices spreading bad doctrine around. And the solution is, is to silence them. But what does that mean? What does it mean to silence insubordinate, empty, deceptive, legalistic voices? Well, a couple of things. First, I think it means to take away the mic. Like, listen, just because... Someone is smart, or says they're a Christian, or has a best-selling book, or maybe they're in some sort of leadership position. Like maybe they're a professor at a seminary. That doesn't mean that we should accept everything that they say. Our elders are very protective of what's taught in this church. They're very protective of this moment, like the people that we bring in from the outside to teach. So, like, like, like doctrine matters, and and we're very protective of that. Like, like we there's all sorts of voices around us, and we shouldn't just accept every voice that claims to be Christian or someone who is who is famous. We need to be careful about elevating false teachers. Listen, if you find out that someone is divisive or or that they're uh, teaching empty things or deceptive things, take away the mic. Like, by purchasing that book from, from someone, are, are you funding false teaching? And listen, I'm in the camp like Spurgeon. I just read everything, okay? But somewhere in there, there's a line, right? Like, should we be buying books from people who are false teachers? Or what about recommending a podcast? Like, if there's a podcast and it's false teachers, should we recommend those podcasts to people? But second, it means to rebuke those voices. Christian leaders have this key role to explain why false, uh, why false teachers are teaching bad doctrine. Like that's that's the point of pastors and elders. And, and hear me, I think this is one of the most difficult things in ministry. It's difficult if you're a pastor or elder and you just don't like conflict and I'm I'm kind of in, I'm in that category like I I just don't like running everybody down. I don't like speaking ill of anybody. Like it, it it's draining to me, okay? But but also I think one of the challenges in this generation is is for local church pastors and elders is that sometimes you have these famous platform preachers that are false teachers. And I've seen a lot of late people that they give more credibility to them, give more authority than they trust them more than their local church elders. Hear me, I think you should trust Mike and Andy and Brian way more than Jen Hatmaker, Joel Osteen, uh, Benny Hinn, or Rob Bell. Those are more faithful voices in your life. You should trust them more. God's given them to you. Not that they're perfect, not that they're going to have everything figured out, but God's given you them and those people have platforms and make a lot of money off Christianity and selling their books, but they're not faithful teachers of God's word. The reason leaders are called to silence these voices, and notice what Paul's doing here. He's referencing specific people. I don't like to reference specific people sometimes in sermons, but I think that's what Paul's doing. He writes this letter, and they know, they know who he's talking about. He's talking about people, he's not just talking about ideas. He's talking about people. And the reason leaders are called to silence those voices by taking away the mic and and rebuking those errors is because their teaching can upset individuals as well as groups of families. Look at verse 11. He says that that the Cretan false teachers were upsetting whole families. Now certainly what that is talking about is is like a family unit. But I also think what it's probably also talking about is these house churches. That, That this bad doctrine was like poison And and it it wasn't just poisoning individuals. It was poisoning groups of people and and likely entire churches. And listen, if you've walked with Jesus for a long time, you've seen this in people's lives, right? Like there'll be this bad doctrine that pops up. And like all bad doctrine, it's not unreasonable. It makes sense. it's like you kind of get how they get there. And and yet there's kind of a point there. But typically it's like throwing the baby out with the bathwater and there's all these like false straw men that are throwing up, thrown up. But, But then you... But then you watch that person's life. And what happens is, 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 and and you can probably think of people in your life where a year later, five years later, ten years later, they're not closer to the Lord as a result of embracing that false doctrine. They're further away. But before moving on, Paul questions the motives of these teachers. Notice what he says here, that, that he believed that they were spreading bad doctrine for shameful gain. So what they were doing is they were, they, were, they were doing it for financial gain or maybe the benefits, maybe the favors that came from it. But they were doing it for themselves. That their motives were wrong. Friends, just like in the New Testament, there are still divisive, empty, dishonest voices out there. Like we we need to know good doctrine in order to identify the bad doctrine. We need leaders who will help increase our knowledge. Titus one one of the truth, so that we can then be wise and be able to pick out what is true and untrue. Best selling books, you know, podcasts that have a ton of subscribers that doesn't ensure good doctrine. Just because they have a following doesn't mean that it's good doctrine. Brian, Brian Chapel says, wrong words. Wrong motives and wrong actions mark ungodly leaders' path to error. What that means is I think we need, to, we need to watch the lives of people that we listen and learn from. Watch their lives. When someone's words or motives or actions are in contradiction to the word, then we should silence those voices. Don't give them the mic. Re- re- rebuke uh, the noise that's out there. So verses 10 and 11 they're kind of focused on individuals, okay? Silencing and rebuking those individuals. But 12 to 14, he gets a little bit broader here. Now, he's going to speak to individuals, but he's going to also sweep, uh, speak to the sweeping cultural presuppositions. So the second point here is to rebuke cultural presuppositions and unfaithful voices. Look at 12, 13, and 14. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. put my cards on the table. I think verses 12 and 13 are some of the most uncomfortable in the Bible. Like and I read that, and you're probably like me, the question comes up, wait a second. Is Paul, like, sinfully prejudiced against the Cretans? I, I want to chase that question a little bit. I, I, I don't think that he is, but I, but I think that that's sure what it looks like. But let me tell you why I don't think that that's what it is. First off, he's quoting a Cretan philosopher here, okay? So he's not, he's not only, these aren't his words, he's quoting somebody else, but it's somebody who's not outside, you know, of this tribe. It's somebody who's inside that tribe. And, and second, I think probably what's going on here is a sarcastic joke. Now, when you're a pastor, you know that like Sunday morning is for like the corny jokes, okay? So that's all I can give you on Sunday morning. But Saturday night, the comedians, they can get a little more raw, right? Like They can get a little more sarcastic. I think this is one of these jokes that is just kind of on the line. I think that's what he's doing here. But third, and more importantly, what I think he's doing here is I think he's using a rhetorical device in order to make an important point like he's he's, he's, he's uh, identifying something, he's quoting something as a rhetorical device to make a very important point. And here's the important point that he's making. He's saying that the Cretans, like all people, all people, no matter the age, no matter where they live, no matter if they're uh, in suburbia or in a big city or or if they're rich or they're poor, if they're Americans or they're Texans or whatever, all people, the Cretans, like all people, they had some cultural presuppositions that they were breathing in that needed to be rebuked. I think that's what he's doing here. I think that's the point that he's trying to make. You see, Paul felt that there was something in that philosopher's old saying. that Maybe it was a joke, but there was some truth there. There were some cultural presuppositions that had had seeped into that culture that was really affecting how these Christians were walking. They were breathing in some stuff that was actually leading to bad doctrine. And and that can happen in any culture. That happens in our culture. Amen? Right? There's things out there that we breathe in that, listen, that we end up looking more like the world and and less like Jesus as a result. And, And that's why they needed faithful teachers like Titus. That's why they needed a sharp rebuke. That's why they needed education in the gospel, increasing their knowledge of the truth. And that's why they needed restoration of that truth. Friends, the reality of cultural presuppositions seeping into the church, that is still a reality today. Like we can breathe in the culture and as a result look more like the world and less like Jesus. And the danger of that is, is that we bring in the problems of the world into the house of God. So if we just do... Like leadership, like here in the church, like like they do maybe in the military. Like, man, the military and the church, those are different things. And, and if we just do leadership that way, we're just gonna bring in those problems. But 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 also if we just look like the world, then listen, we're gonna we're gonna miss out on the distinction of the gospel and really the the transformative power of the gospel. Like the gospel calls you to be different. Like, listen, elders. You need to help us rebuke the lies of the world so that we can be different, beautifully different. You're called to be distinct from the world. Do you see that? You're not supposed to look like the world. You're supposed to look different than the world. So so men, like it's a good thing. Like when your buddies make fun of you for like putting your family before your fun, unlike what they're doing, and they tease you for that, that's a good thing. Ladies, it's a good thing. Like, like when you don't know the, the references to some inappropriate show that your girlfriends are watching, like that's a, that's a good thing, okay? Students, it's a good thing when, when you display mature self-control, like with your thought life, with your bodies, with your words. That's a good thing. It's different, but it's good. And, and let me tell you why it's good. It's how you grow closer to Jesus, Okay? by being different, by being distinct, faithfully distinct. That's how you grow closer to Jesus. And when you get closer to Jesus, that's where joy is found. But, but let me push it one step further. You might have to bear the burden of their, of their teasing you and mocking you because you might have to bear that burden because you might be the, the, the pebble in the, in the shoe for them that God chooses. Like, like your distinction might be the thing that causes them just to slow down a second and realize, wait a second, there's something different here. I, I'm just assuming certain things. Maybe I shouldn't assume that. Maybe, maybe I ought to live like Jesus calls me. Maybe Jesus is teaching me something different. You might be that pebble in the shoe for them. So you might have to, to bear that burden of being different. But that's where joy is found, and, and that's where life transformation is found. However, in addition to rebuking cultural presuppositions that, that creep in and seep into the church, Titus and the Cretan elders, they're also to rebuke just kind of all forms of unfaithfulness all these strange myths and and anti-gospel legalism that was seeping in. Notice in verse 15 that he references Jewish myths. Now probably what's going on there is some sort of kind of strange or weird combination between Gnosticism, which makes this hard break from from the physical self and the immaterial self, and and Jewish, uh, like a Hellenistic uh, Judaism, and so these things are just somehow probably brought in together. But, but the real point here is not the content of all that, but just to say that they were toying with weird and strange ideas. And we need to understand the, the themes and the emphases of the Bible, and we need to make those the themes and emphases of our teaching in our lives. In other words, if the Bible doesn't major on it, the Bible did not even speak to it, if the Bible's not consumed by it, we shouldn't be consumed by it. We shouldn't chase these kind of weird ideas that are out there. And every generation has them. And there's always these strange things that float around. And, and, and notice that he connects Jewish myths with, in verse 12 with liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. So, so there's something dishonest about it. There's something evil about it. There's something strange about it. And, and these leaders were, were happy to, to sit around and discuss these things. You know, they, they were just happy to kind of like slackers, just floating around, wrestling with these strange ideas But really what they needed is they needed the grit and the faithfulness of elders just standing firm on sound doctrine. Not toying with all these other different things, but just staying focused on on good doctrine and good deeds. And further, many of these leaders were also no doubt drifting into legalism. That's an aspect of the Jewish myth. They're they're drifting into these things, adding good works to the gospel of grace. Paul says in Colossians 2.22, If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to its regulations? What he's saying there is you've died with Christ. Amen? That's the good news of the gospel. You don't have to do anything else. You you don't have to earn favor from God. You're not justified by something that you do because He's the one who has died. And you've died with Him. You're in Christ. So you don't need to add to it in any way. So whatever these Jewish myths were where they were adding to the gospel, they needed pastors and elders. They needed Titus to step into that. We're called to make the gospel the main thing and increase our understanding of it. So rebuke cultural presuppositions and unfaithful voices. However, that type of ministry, that type of shepherding, that always brings opposition. And that's the third point. In the face of opposition, teach good doctrine. Look at 15 and 16, and then Titus 2, 1. To the pure, all things are pure. But to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. And then verse 1. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Verses 15 and 16, this is just a statement of fact. That's all he's doing, he's just stating a fact. Pure people will view things in pure ways. And then there's this other group, defiled people, which he puts in the category of unbelievers. They're going to view things as unpure and and unholy, and, and that's just who they are. This is just a statement of fact. So before Christ, we're all in bondage to sin. We're all in that category. And because of God's grace, he puts us in this different category. But the people that are still in that old category, they're just going to oppose what is what is faithful. They're going to oppose what is pure. They're going to oppose good doctrine. It's just inevitable. That's all he's saying. This is inevitable. This is just who they are. So so when you face opposition as an individual or as a church leader or as a church as a whole, as, as you face that, just know that it's inevitable. Don't be surprised by it. It's just who they are. If, if you're holding an, a firm ethical position or a doctrinal position because that's who you are as a Christian, you're going to catch opposition from them because, again, that's just who they are. So until the glorious return of Christ, until He makes all things new, until He brings His kingdom and restores His kingdom, this is just what it's going to be, okay? This is just what it's going to be because that's who they are. So leaders, verse 15 explains the nature of opposition. When you hear arguments against God or against the Bible or against the gospel that are outside the church, know that they're coming from defiled, unbelieving hearts. Just know that to be true. He's just stating it as fact. So their mind and their consciences, they're in bondage to their defilement, to the fall. Jesus said it this way, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. It's who they are. Brothers and sisters, those opposing Christ outside the church, they're in bondage. However, that's not the only people he talks about there, right? Do you see that? There's another group of people that he talks about there. We have to understand that the work of teaching good doctrine to help people do good deeds, it's more complex than an us versus them reality. Like verse 16, it explains the opposition will also come from within. Leaders... Not only are you called to do ministry in the face of the opposition of unbelievers outside the church, but you're going to have to do it from those who, in in verse 16 says, those who profess to know God. You're going to get opposition from inside the church as well. C.S. Lewis had a great quote. I think it's true. He said, of all the bad men, the religious bad men are the worst. And I think he's right. Listen, sadly, if you've served in ministry, if you've been in leadership of a church, you've like, likely experienced that sort of opposition inside the church. You've experienced those who are detestable and disobedient, as he says. Let me say it this way. Pastors and elders, sometimes the arrows can come from pastors and elders. Sometimes they can come from inside the church. But friends, if you think this is just like Paul and Titus, like remember Jesus? <laughs> this was Jesus' ministry too, right? Like this was Jesus' experience, right? Like, he caught a lot of arrows from the outside. Like, Sadducees and Pharisees, they weren't friends. Like, they were mortal enemies. So those, are, those are groups that, that didn't work together on anything. They were not allies, except when it came to Jesus. Then they paired up to shoot those arrows, right? Like, they developed arguments against him. They, they tried to discredit him. They used all their political power to, to get him arrested and, and to get him crucified. So, those arrows came from without in, in Jesus' ministry. But they came from within too, right? Like, didn't that happen to Jesus? But, like, he had a guy, one of his 12. He, he poured probably three full years into this guy. And in the end, he just betrayed him. But, but it wasn't just Judas. Like, you remember Peter on that, on that Friday night, right? Like Peter, one of the three, the one he was most closest to, this, this disciple that, that went up to with him on the mountain of transfiguration, in his moment of truth, he denies Christ. So the arrows for Jesus came from within as well. Friends, this is the reality of ministry today. But, but I, I, I don't, I want us to, as I kind of wrestle with that, all this this week, all this sounds so intense to me. It sounds like church and ministry are, are just this one fight after another. And so that hasn't been my experience, okay? But, but, but it can be that. Like, like maybe you've been through a contentious church situation. I, I've been through those. And, and listen, it's true that shepherding God's people, it, it can include needing to silence the divisive, the empty, and the, and the disobedient voices. At times, ministry can be about rebuking these cultural presuppositions and to put my cards on the table. I don't like doing that at all, okay? I just want to talk about Santa Claus Jesus who wants to hug you. That's all I want to do. I don't want to step into these weird ethical things that go on in our culture. Like, like, pastors don't like to rebuke those things. Opposition does come from outside and inside the church. However, if a church is always one fight after another, It is an unhealthy church. And let me tell you why, and and I think the solution is embedded here. When churches are like that, if it's just one fight after another, what's going on there is is they're probably not teaching good doctrine. And and the bad doctrine has seeped in there, and it's just a mess all over the place. Or or there's something going on there that that they're not linking their doctrine with their their good deeds and, and a godly life. So listen, if a church is just marked by that all the time, there's something unhealthy going on, but the solution is, is to teach good doctrine. Titus 2.1, but as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Now listen, over the coming weeks, we're going to kind of unpack that, that command of what that looks like in, in the local church, kind of in these different categories that, that he lays out. But for now, I just want to note that the, the general focus of pastors and elders and their ministry in a healthy church It's to teach good doctrine. That's why God has given them to you. And good doctrine has an objective and a subjective aspect to it. Like when we ask these guys to teach good doctrine, there is an objective truth that we're asking them to communicate and explain. So they're supposed to explain the truths about the person and work of the Trinity. They're supposed to unpack the inerrancy of Scripture, the sufficiency and the authority of the Bible. They're supposed to talk about the person and work of Christ. They're supposed to note just the objective truth about what Jesus accomplishes in His atoning work on the cross and how that affects you. They're supposed to talk about His resurrection and the promised return of Christ. They're supposed to talk about the good ethical life, the, the patterns of a, of a healthy spiritual life, of what it means to, to hope in heaven and to hope in, in His coming kingdom. There's just objective truths they're supposed to communicate. And hear me, the, the philosophers, the sociologists, the therapists, they have a role to play, okay? They have a good role to play, but they can't touch any of that. Like they, they can't give you hope and, and, and solutions to your problems like that, like, the, like those objective truths are. Those objective truths, that's better news than anybody else can give you. So brothers, faithfully teach good doctrine. But, but there's a subjective element about this too. It's, it's objective truth, but that objective truth should link to the subjective experience of the good life and good deeds. That's the whole point of the book of Titus. Be devoted to good doctrine, that leads to good, to good deeds, to, to godliness in the lives of the saints. And, and what that means is, is that, listen, we're, we're all on these different journeys. We're all the same in many ways, but we're all different in other ways, right? Like the way this plays out in my life is going to look differently than it plays out in your life. God's going to take you through these different experiences. He's going to gift you in different ways with different personalities. So, so the good life might look different than the good life uh, looks for me but there is a connection between what we believe and how we live. Therefore, the charge of Titus 1.10 to 2.1 is to silence and rebuke bad doctrine with good doctrine. Can I leave you with three little takeaways? First, don't listen to those voices. Like when you determine a voice is divisive or empty or deceptive, or or if it's really more in line with the presuppositions of the culture and less in line with the Word of God, if that voice is silly or legalistic, just turn it off. Don't buy his books anymore. Don't listen to her podcast anymore. Find a different church. There's plenty of faithful voices and focus your energies on the faithful voices. But second... Speak up against those voices. Church leaders, if you feel a voice is unreliable, then do the work of determining why. And then help lead your church in a different direction. Shepherd the flock of God away from the liberal wokeness of someone like Jen Hatmaker or the universalism of someone like Rob Bell or the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel of someone like Benny Hinn. Parents, you should... Speak into the important ethical issues of the day. That's what this means. Listen, your kids are catching all this somewhere. All these voices are coming at them. They're breathing in all these things, and they need you to speak into these things. They need you to, to explain what the biblical perspective on things like homosexuality and transgenderism and abortion and racism. They need you to speak into those things. Number three, Focus on teaching and listening to good doctrine. We've all heard how uh, you know, the government officials, the, the way they spot forgeries is they become experts on the real thing. It's kind of a similar thing with good doctrine. Like, like if, you're, if you're an expert on the gospel, you'll be able to sniff out the bad doctrine. Romans three twenty three and 24 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. That's good doctrine. That's the Gospel. That's the the, the truth of how how, uh, God has graciously justified us. About God's redeeming work of Jesus on the cross. That's how we're made right with Him. Confessing our sin, but believing what He's done on the cross is make us right with Him. When we focus on that, When we just circle that gospel over and over and over again for the rest of our lives, that's the good doctrine that we live by. That's going to lead to good deeds and that's going to help us spot the bad doctrine that's out there. Let me return by going back to my question Should we allow someone into covenant membership in our church if they're living an unrepentant, sinful lifestyle? that would require us to immediately enter into church, a church discipline process with them? The answer to that is no. And the answer to that is no, no matter the sin. It doesn't matter the specifics of the sin. If the Bible is clear on something, and someone's not living according to that, then we shouldn't allow them in a church discipline. Now, the understanding the why of the answer to that question, that requires a lot of good doctrine doesn't it that sounds pretty harsh that sounds pretty unloving but that's only if you don't understand what the church is the nature of the church like in order to understand that issue you have to understand what the bible teaches about church membership and how that's a different category than the people who uh, attend a church but let's be abundantly abundantly clear everyone is welcome through uh, uh through the doors of this church Everyone is welcome here. We want everyone, no matter what they believe, no matter what they were doing last night, we want everyone here to hear the good news of the gospel. But an attender, that's something different than a covenant member. Like like a covenant member who's one who has trusted in Christ for their salvation. And they've professed that by faithfully following what Jesus did and what Jesus calls us to, which is to be baptized. And then to live in this community faithfully, not perfectly, but faithfully with other Christians in their lives. That's a different thing than someone who just floats in, right? The answer to my very practical question requires very careful understanding on the nature of sin, as well as what sin is and what sin isn't, right? Like we need to understand what sin is and how we're supposed to respond to it. Like answering my question, it requires good doctrine that teaches that we all still experience the lingering effects of sin. Like, if you hear my question, you say, well, I'm not a member. That sounds pretty judgmental. I, I don't want you to think that covenant members of the church don't struggle with the lingering effects of sin. <laughs> that, that, that's, that's bad doctrine if you believe that. Good doctrine is, is that Christians struggle with the lingering effects of sin. But, but some fight it, and some give in to it, and some, even worse, they label what the Bible clearly says as sinful They label it as virtuous. And and that's a different thing, right? Some even go so far as turning what is sinful into an identity and a lifestyle. That's very different from the one who clearly understands their struggle is sinful and is doing what they can to fight against it. That's a different thing, right? And that's an important discipleship issue that comes up when we talk about church discipline. And finally, my question requires us to understand what is church discipline? what it is and what it isn't. Again, everyone is welcome to the doors of our church. However, a, a, a church is unhealthy if it never does church discipline. It's unhealthy because it means the leaders of the church are not really shepherding. They're putting on a show, they're gathering a crowd, but they're not really making disciples. They're not really getting into the lives of people. But, but let me take the other extreme. A church that is always doing church discipline, I think they're probably unhealthy too. Like there's probably this kind of culty, nitpicky thing that they're doing. Or they're just not teaching good doctrine and everybody's a mess all over the place. So if you're never doing church discipline, there's a problem. If you're always doing church discipline, there's a problem. Our church needs a bunch of faithful, Titus-like leaders. That's what our church needs. Our our small groups, they need friendships that are willing to do the loving work of caring for souls. Our, our, Our homes need... Mothers and fathers who are willing to lovingly raise their kids in the Word of God. Friends, what I want you to take away from this passage is, is that ideas have consequences. And bad ideas lead to bad consequences. So don't be apathetic about bad doctrine. It really upsets real people, is what Paul was saying. So, leaders, silence and rebuke bad doctrine inside and outside the church by teaching good doctrine that leads to good work. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for this passage. And and there's a weight to this passage. I've I've grown up in the South. I've grown up in Texas. And being critical of anybody, it it just comes off as rude. There's a rudeness to this passage. And so Lord, I, I pray that that we could get past that, if that's where some of us are, and, and see the real wisdom of this. That, that there, there are untruths that swirl around us in our culture all the time. We're no different than the Cretans in that way. We have all these cultural presuppositions. Lord, I, I know we're never going to be a perfect church, but I pray that we would be a faithful church, a church that is faithful to Your Word, Really trying to help us think through those presuppositions, so that we can walk more faithfully with you. Help us to be a, a faithful people. I, I know we'll never be perfect, but may we be a faithful people. So, Lord, give us uh, give us leaders who have just strong uh, convictions that, that persevere in teaching good doctrine. H- help us to have leaders who really shepherd. Lord, be with those. Uh, the leaders of our church as they attempt to fulfill this ministry. It's in Jesus' name we'll pray. Amen.